Welcome. Good morning. Uh, I am glad to be back in worship with you all. Um, we have a healthy third little girl at our home now, um, healthy mom, and uh, all very tired, but we're, we're very uh, joyful right now. Um, before we get started with our worship service, let me go through three announcements. Uh, tonight, we are um, excited for the installation service of Pastor Heath. So if you can make it tonight, the service starts at 6 p.m. and afterwards we will have a light dinner available um, and a time just to fellowship and hang out. So if you can join us, please do. We're looking forward to that. Secondly, the Missions Committee is meeting on July 2nd, next Sunday, I believe, at 5 p.m. in the church library, and everyone is invited who is interested to attend that. And lastly, <clears throat> you'll see information about Vacation Bible School coming up in July, and the most important part of this is that you sign up if you have a child or uh, a friend of theirs who is intending to come. There's going to be a form that's emailed out. There will also be forms printed out and available in the back at some point soon. So please, oh, they're there now. So please grab one of those or look for the email and sign up immediately so that we can plan well for that. And if you're willing to help with VBS, please contact Christy. That is all of our announcements. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ has brought us here by the power of His Spirit. So would you take a few moments to ask God to help you worship Him this morning? We'll do that now. Good morning. It's been about 16 years since we had an installation here, so I invite you all to come back this evening. We don't know when we'll do it again, if we ever will again. 
Uh, but it is a special time this evening as we gather. It's a special time now as we gather for the worship, the public corporate worship of God. And so I would invite you to stand as I read from Psalm 63, our call to worship, and continue standing through the confession of our faith. Psalm 63, the first three verses, says this is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Let those who have experienced the steadfast love, the hesed of our Father, uh, praise him during this time. We'll stand, stay standing, and sing all six verses you'll see of hymn number four. All praise to God who reigns above. Hymn number four. Let's pray. Our great God, you are indeed God. 
You are Lord of Lords. You are King of Kings. You have called us here to be here this morning. We are here at the summoning of the King, the great King who does all things well. We confess your holy name because of the blood of Christ, because you have sent your Son, and instead of giving us what we deserve for our sins, you have clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. You have seated us in the great throne room, and we are here to adore you, to praise you, to lift up our request to you, to worship you, and to hear from you, to hear from our God. We ask that you would accept our praise, that you would accept what we offer to you during this time, and we pray the prayer that our Lord modeled for us in our prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. If you remain standing, we will confess our faith, the faith of our fathers, the faith of those who have tasted the loving kindness, the steadfast love of our God. So I ask you, Christian, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty. Uh, as with almost every Sunday, there is many things that we can be praying for for our church. There is always great joy and there is always great grief and sometimes tragedy. And so I'd like to lead us in a prayer this morning. Would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Dear Father, we come before you um, looking for your, your peace, looking for your love, your comfort. God, we come to your word and we know that you are uh, aware of the depths of sadness and grief that we experience in this life. Lord, we read that all are from the dust and the dust we will Return, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God, we were made for eternity. We were made for life with you, with no injustice, with no unexpected fires, with no tears. We were made for an eternal home, which you've prepared for each one of your people. Our homes and our belongings are temporary, and this truth doesn't dull the great loss we feel when we lose these things unexpectedly and unjustly, because they point us to our safety and our security in you. Lord, we pray that you would comfort the Kirks, that you would show them your fatherly care, and that you would provide for their needs, and we pray that you would show them your faithfulness, which they know so well already. Lord, it is, as I've said, there is great grief. There's also great joy uh, in the midst of your church. There is great um, excitement and expectation for our middle school ladies who are going to RYM this week. 
We pray for Christy and Jamie as they chaperone and lead um, this group of young women, that you would give them a great time, that you would give them safety as they travel, and that most of all, that this trip would deepen their love for you. God, we pray for Linda, we pray for Christy as they grieve the losses of their family members. Lord, you are close to those who are brokenhearted. So, Lord, be with them closely. Show them your mercy. Help them to experience that. God, we are looking forward with great expectation to the installation service this evening for Heath. God, would you be present in all that happens this evening in the planning, in the preparation, in the service, in the fellowship afterwards? Lord, would it be all to your glory and to the glory of and growth of your church. Lord, be with us as we um, celebrate and as we uh, follow your lead. Um, And would you bless your church uh, during this next season of life under Pastor Heath. Lord, we are grateful to be here in this worship service this morning. You have prepared your table for us. You have prepared your word for us to hear and to receive. So would you do all these things We thank you for this time, and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Please pray with me. Lord, we uh, give because you have called us to give, and we give because all that we have received is from you. So would you use our tithes and offerings to grow your kingdom, to bless your people, to provide for those who are in need. Do all these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would remain standing, we'll continue worshiping and singing with hymn number 38. Hymn 38, which is Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Let's continue worshiping.
What are we saying? There we go. Oh, hallelujah. And I mean that. So, before I read the text, as y'all are going to watch me get dressed, um, it's funny, I, I, we talked, I uh, was talking to a few people earlier about the robe situation. And, uh, you know, the, the biggest manufacturer of robes for Presbyterians, Murphy Robes, just got bought out. And so uh, you can't even buy a robe right now. But the microphone is working right now, so that's good. And let's read Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This ends the reading of God's Word. So, began last week a series I'm calling Transfigurational Living. The idea comes from 2 Corinthians 3, which we looked at. Uh, that beholding the glory of Christ, we are being transformed or transfigured, same word in Greek, into that same glory from one degree to another. Seeing the glory of Christ changes us. And today I want to talk to you about how the transfiguration of Christ himself, I uh, actually planned on doing one sermon with three points, but it, it may turn into... Uh, Three sermons. We're going to be in this passage at least one more week, maybe one after that, because there's, there's just too much here. But I want to talk today about how seeing the transfiguration of Christ can change how we see God and how we see the Bible, and especially how we see the Old Testament. I mean, it can, seeing Christ's glory in this transformation can transform the way we see God as much as seeing an ultrasound can change the way we look at a baby in a mother's womb. Now, how is that? That's the question. Well, three points to get us there. I want to talk about the problem of the transfiguration, the solution of the transfiguration, and the effect the transfiguration can have on our lives. So, number one, the problem of the transfiguration. Well, you see it near the end of the passage we read, starting in verse 5. It says, Peter was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Here you go. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. So the first thing to notice is the reaction of the disciples to the transfiguration. It's problematic. They fell on their faces and were terrified. I like the way the King James puts it. They were sore afraid. Why? Well, a bright cloud had overshadowed them. And the voice of God spoke out of the cloud. Where, what does that bring your mind to if you know the Bible, if you know the Old Testament? You're going back to Mount Sinai. You're going back to the giving of the law of God. Going back to thunder and lightning and smoke and earthquakes. And it's terrifying. In the Exodus, God appeared in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. He came down on the mountain in smoke. And the people of Israel said, Moses, you go up the mountain. We don't want anything to do with this God. We're scared. We're terrified. And that's the disciples' reaction here. And many commentators make the point about Matthew 17 and the transfiguration that you just think about the two people, the two figures who appear with Jesus on the mountain. And they're Moses and Elijah. What do they have in common? 
Well, they have, they have several things in common, and we'll talk more about this at least next week. But one major thing that they had in common was that they both had almost blinding visions of God on a mountain and that they both heavily emphasized the law of God and God's judgment in their ministries. When you picture Moses, what, what's he doing? You know, his face is glowing with the radiance of the glory of God and the people are hiding their faces from him because they can't stand to see the glory. And he has to put a cloth over his face to hide it. Or he's turning the Nile to blood. Or he's announcing the death of the firstborn. Or he's on the mountain with God in the smoke, in the thunder and lightning. lightning. Or he's giving the law. He's rendering judicial verdicts on behalf of God. He's striking a rock in his anger at the children of Israel. And when you picture Elijah, what's he doing? Elijah was not the most pleasant person to be around in the world. You know, he's most known for calling, repeatedly calling down fire from heaven, not only on a sacrifice, but also on God's enemies. Um, he's slaying the prophets of Baal. He's challenging Ahab and Jezebel because of their wickedness. And because of this, people have called Elijah the second Moses. He was the second messenger of the law. When uh, I read years ago a sermon by B.B. Warfield on the life of Elijah. This is how he summarized Elijah's ministry. Elijah was by natural disposition and by virtue of the side of God which he had not yet apprehended. Naturally inclined to act as the witness of God against his people. Well fitted to call down the vengeance of God upon them and to delight in the overthrow of his enemies. He was in danger, Elijah was in danger of thinking of God only as a lawgiver and the just avenger of his wounded honor. Elijah is a voice from the wilderness crying one word, repent. He is the human embodiment of the wrath of God. Wherever he goes, destruction accompanies him, drought, fire from heaven, Floods of rain, death for the enemies of God, follow hard in his footsteps. Elijah is embodied law. Jesus shining, dazzling on the mountain in the presence of Moses and Elijah. The natural reaction of the disciples is it means law. It means judgment. It means that they're about to get smoked, nuked. It means God is going to cut them down. And you know, I wonder if you've had that feeling in your, in your life before. Uh, you've, you know, the old Scottish church, when a, a child was becoming a communicant or when a non-believer was on the edge of becoming a believer, they would ask them the question, have you been to Mount Sinai? Have you felt the judgment of the law of God? Have you, has it probed your heart and shown you how sinful you are and how unworthy you are to stand before the presence of God. See, that's the problem of the transfiguration. We're left terrified, scared to death before the law of God. But here's the solution, number two. It's what Jesus does and what he says to the disciples in response to their fear. This is in verse 7. But Jesus, but Jesus... I love that phrase, came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Let's follow what he does here and what he says in order. First, it says he touched them. The Greek word for touch is interesting. It's hopto. In the active voice, that verb means to light a fire. In the middle voice, it means to touch or to cling to or embrace. So the way it's used here, it means something like a touch that spreads like a fire. It's a consuming touch. It's an engulfing touch. It's a warm touch. It's an embrace. So it's not like he just patted them on the back and said, they're their disciples. What he's actually doing is he's embracing them. He's wrapping his arms around them and saying, get up, rise up, have no fear. The glory of God, Jesus is showing for a disciple, isn't meant to make us afraid. It's actually meant to be something 
we embrace and something that embraces us. I always loved the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. You know, the chorus says, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. And see, this is even better than that, because it's not I will arise and go to Jesus. It's Jesus comes down to me, embraces me in his arms, picks me up, and says, get up and stop fearing. Don't be afraid. Then in the text, in verse 8, it says, they lifted up their eyes and saw no one or nothing but Jesus only. Moses, in the presence of Jesus, Moses and Elijah disappear. We're called to see no one but Jesus only. You know, that was a great model of the Reformation was Jesus alone, right? Solus Christus, Christ alone. We sing the hymn, in Christ alone our hope is found. He is my strength, my life, my song, my cornerstone, all of these things. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease. No guilt in life, no fear of death. This is the power of Christ in me. So that's what the disciples are experiencing in the passage. Moses and Elijah fade away. Jesus says, get up, don't be afraid. And they see no one but Jesus only. What a moment. So the problem of Mount Sinai is it reminds us there's this holy God who can't bear to look upon sin. But then we see Jesus here standing alone in the transfiguration. And it says, you don't have to fear this God anymore. Because Christ is this God, clothed in flesh, the Godhead see, held the incarnate deity. That Jesus Christ comes so that the God who dwells in unapproachable light uh, now actually comes and approaches us. He becomes approachable through the life and through the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is one of the ways that Jesus' transfiguration gives light to the Old Testament and gives light to the way that we view God. Because the law says fall down in fear. The gospel says get up and don't be afraid. The law says, Romans 7, we're sold under sin. The gospel says, Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law says, God will consume you like fire. The gospel says, God will consume you in his loving embrace. Do you believe that? You say, well, isn't isn't God holy? Isn't God a God of wrath? Yes. You can't read the Old Testament. You can't read Moses. You can't see the ministry of Elijah and deny that. But look, back to the conversation. So Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah. Our passage in Matthew says, in verse 3, Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. But what are they talking about? Don't you wonder? Wouldn't you like to eavesdrop on that conversation? Well, go to the Gospel of Luke and we get to. Because Luke actually tells us the subject of their conversation. This is Luke 9, 30 and 31. It says, Behold, two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his, Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They were talking about Jesus' departure. Greek word, translated departure, take a wild guess what it is. It's exodus, exodon to be precise. They were talking about his exodus. Jesus' death is the new exodus. It's the ultimate fulfillment of what Moses began to do in the Old Testament. But in the exodus of the Old Testament, the plagues, the blood, the death of the firstborn, in the new, they're all being applied to Jesus. He's the beloved child. He's the firstborn who is going to die. He's the Passover lamb. The Nile isn't going to be turned to blood The Son of God is coming to bleed for us. Because all the penalties of the law, the vengeance of God that Elijah preached, the fire of God was going to come down on Christ as a substitute for his people. He came to take the blame and bear the wrath that we deserve. And so the law says fall down in fear. The gospel says rise 
and fear not. He's going to take you to the promised land. And he loves you. And so that's the solution of the transfiguration. The holy God who dwells in unapproachable light has now drawn near to us and become approachable. Here's the last point. The result of the transfiguration. Well, I say the result. There are no telling how many results, but I wanted to focus on one today. And here's the challenge for you. It's something that's challenged me in the past week as I've been thinking about this passage, among other things in Scripture. When you think about God and the Bible, especially the Old Testament, do you primarily think about good behavior instead of good news? Do you primarily think about God as a God of anger, vengeance, and justice, and judgment, rather than a God of grace, love, and compassion? I slip into that all of the time. All of the time. Um, I think there's a closet Pharisee in all of us who wants to think that really the reason God loves us, or God tolerates us at least, is because we're just a little better than everybody else, or we're a little more holy than everybody else until we get caught in our weaker moments where we realize when we stand before the law of God, we fail so dramatically and so drastically. I was listening, we were driving up or driving down from Nashville yesterday and listening to random radio station, and there's a lady on some Christian radio station teaching about the mark of the beast. What is the mark of the beast? Well, she didn't answer that, and I'm not going to answer that. But I didn't mean to get your hopes up on that. <laughs> but what she ended up talking about, she didn't say what it was, but, but she said that basically those have the mark of the beast who fail to keep God's law. And I thought, lady... If your heart's anything like mine, what are you talking about? Because you're walking around with it. Whether it's a microchip, whether it's a tattoo, whether it's just something in your heart. We all fail miserably. And so we walk around with this conflicting, these conflicting hearts, these conflicting souls that one moment think, well, I'm a precious, unique snowflake and God loves me, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. And the next moment we're like, oh, I'm so terrible, God hates me. And that's life, right? We just vacillate between those two feelings. One minute, you're up on top of the mountain. The next minute, you're down in the valley. One minute, it's Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The next, it's Jesus hates me, this I know. Because my heart and my experience tells me so. Tells me so. And so we need this message over and over again. Martin Luther, you'll hear me say this a million times. But somebody asked Martin Luther once, Dr. Luther, why do you preach the gospel every week? And he said, because we forget it every week. We do. We're saying, God's here. He's trying to cut me down. He hates me. And here's the transfiguration. This God who dwells in unapproachable light, he's coming down and he's saying, he's embracing us and saying, get up. Stop being afraid. God is not one. The fear of God for us now is not being terrified. It's simply, it's, it's a reverence. It's a respect. And I wanted to end with probably the best book I've ever read on the Christian life is The True Bounds of Christian Freedom by Samuel Bolton. Samuel Bolton was a Westminster divine, helped uh, put the Westminster Confession together, and he wrote this great book in the 1600s on sanctification. And he said, a couple, <laughs> this book, I, I mean, I've almost never had an experience like this reading something because that closet Pharisee in me was much stronger then than it is now, though it's still pretty strong now. And he said two things that I'm going to point out. One was that we are now free from the Mosaic Covenant, the law of Moses, as a covenant in itself. And this is a Westminster divine saying this, and I'm thinking, what on earth does he mean? And what he meant was this, that we are no longer, when, when Paul says in the New Testament that we're no longer under law but under grace, what that means is the Mosaic Covenant, the law of God, even the moral law of God, no longer has the power to judge us. It no longer has the power to condemn us because Jesus Christ came into this world himself under that law and took the judgment that we deserve. And so what he effectively did in that case was he took the gavel out of Moses' hand and said, Moses is now our brother, but he's not our judge. 
Because Jesus Christ took the judgment of God. And as a result, Bolton says, I love the analogy, um, when God looks at us, he does not see us like a poisonous snake. Bolton uses a poisonous toad. I've never encountered a poisonous toad, so we'll talk about poisonous snakes. So when you see a poisonous snake, what do you do? Well, unless it's your thing to mess with poisonous snakes, uh, you recoil from it. You recoil. You want to destroy it. You want to chop its head off. And, and Bolton says, see, that's how God views sinners. He recoils from them. He wants to judge them. But for those who believed in Jesus Christ, Christ took the poison for us. He, he was counted as sin. He was counted as poison so that we could become the righteousness of God or be counted as the righteousness of God. And so it means, he's, so Bolton says, when God looks at you, if you're a believer, you're not a poisonous snake. You're someone who's been bit by a poisonous snake. If you have a child that gets bit by, gets bit by a poisonous snake, how do you look at that child? I hate you! No. You have compassion. You show sympathy. You take them to the hospital. You take them to get the antidote, right? You show warmth, tenderness, compassion. And Bolton says, that's you in front of God now because of what Christ has done for you. When you fall into sin, you think, God hates me, God hates me, God hates me. And what we will spend the rest of our lives learning from Jesus is that, no, I mean, look at the cross. God has proved his love for you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're, we do fall. And we're going to fall. And Jesus is going to come to us over and over again and say, My child, I love you. Get up and don't be afraid. The more you get that drilled down into your heart that God looks at you like your snake bit, not like you're a snake, it can turn the flaming darts of Satan against you into something like sounds of shots from a pop gun. He has nothing over us now because Christ has borne the whole penalty for our sin. Martin Luther said that, I'm paraphrasing, but the only weapon Satan has against us is to say that we're sinners and we deserve the judgment of God. And you know what you can say right back to him? Jesus Christ came to save sinners and take the judgment of God. You have nothing to hold over me. That dog won't hunt. He's all... Hat and no cattle. That horse is out of the barn. I can't think of any more cliches. <laughs> he has no weapon against us now because Christ has taken God's judgment upon us. And so you just have to keep saying to yourself, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Get up. Fear not. And uh, Ignatius of Antioch, the church father, came across a quote of his recently. He said, Apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. And see, that's the part, that's a big part of the message of the transfiguration as Moses and Elijah disappear. It's apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. Don't let the things of this world dazzle you. Don't let Satan and his temptations dazzle you. Let Christ alone dazzle you. That's what the transfiguration is telling us. Christ is more dazzling than we ever imagined, more dazzling than we ever dreamed. Let him and him alone dazzle you. And then see what God does. See the transfigured Christ. See nothing but him only. And live. Let us pray. Father, thank you for showing us the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ transfigured through this great uh, 17th chapter of Matthew. I pray now that as we behold person and work of Christ and the elements that once again he would dazzle us and it's in Christ's name that I ask it, amen now let's stand together and sing hymn number 254 verses 1 through 3 254 verses 1 through 3 
You may be seated. So we come now to the Lord's table and have the privilege of not only worshiping God in word, but also in sacrament. This table, St. Augustine said, presents before us a visible word, uh, a colored picture of Christ's death for us, uh, but even more than a picture, it invites us into the very presence of Christ so that he can embrace us and say, rise and do not fear. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are here today, we're thankful that you're here, but we ask that you would let these elements pass by as they go down the rows as this supper. While it's not this church's table, it's Christ's table, uh, Christ invites only those who have rested and trusted him in faith to partake of his body and blood. If you are a believer, come and welcome uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Taste and see that the Lord is good. On the night in which our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As, uh, as the elements pass through, please hold on to your bread and we'll all partake at the same time. Let us pray. 
Father, we thank you for this food that you've provided for us. But more than food, we thank you for the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please take these common elements of the bread and the cup and consecrate them now to a holy use that by faith we might feed on the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we ask it. Amen. The body and blood of Christ for you take, eat. In like manner, after the supper, the Lord Jesus took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. For as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. What manner of love the Father has lavished upon us 
that we should be called the children of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Take this cup and drink from it, all of you. Let us pray. Father, we rejoice that you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. That if you did not withhold your only Son, Why would you possibly withhold any good thing from us? Lord, fill us with a sense of your love, and in so doing, swell us with gratitude. We thank you for this heavenly feast that you set before us. May we leave this place today filled with wonder, love, and praise. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing the fourth and fifth stanzas of hymn number 254. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.